I would echo what Tanner said, love being here every Sunday because it does feel like a, a family reunion and a chance to spend time with each other, and there is lots of joy in that for sure. Um, I want to tell you about a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, there was a conference he was holding in Omaha, Nebraska one year, and as people walked into the sanctuary that day, he handed each of them a helium-filled balloon. And the reason he did this is because he knew that by nature, the Presbyterian church is, has more refined, more restrained worship, maybe like some of us, in particular myself, but nonetheless, he thought of a creative idea. He said, as everybody arrived, he explained, listen, this is what I want you to do. As we go throughout the service, if there's things that stir your heart with joy, I just want you to release your balloon. And so as the service continued, at different points in time, you would see balloons being released. But would you believe at the end of the service, there were still one-third of the people that were there that day still holding their balloon? So apparently there wasn't anything that was said or done that brought joy to their hearts. Now we can look at that and say, well, maybe the pastor just had a bad day and, and it didn't go so well and... We can blame it on him, but I think there's probably more to it than that. I think more likely it reflects the heart of Christians throughout the world today. Like many of the people in the church that day, we're still holding on to our balloons. Sometimes the absence of joy is because of the absence of hope. We're distracted by all the things going wrong around us that we lose sight of what is good and right true. I know for me this week, that has become kind of part of my story because it seemed like everything I tried to do failed. I would try to fix things and I would end up breaking them. I would try to make something good and it would turn out worse. And it just happened over and over again until I was finally expecting that the next thing I did was probably going to be a failure. So my sweet wife wrote me a text this morning. She said, she reminded me that it's hard to have joy when you expect everything to go wrong. And that's true. We can have joy when we have an, an absence of hope. But sometimes we can lose our joy because of the presence of sin. We get stuck in the futility of, of, of trying to find satisfaction in something other than Jesus Christ. And that becomes a joyless adventure because nothing satisfies like Jesus Christ. Sometimes, if we're honest, we can have an absence of joy because of the presence of guilt. After all, how can I have joy in my heart when someone I love has cancer? It's hard to imagine, but, but I do believe, based on what the Bible tells us, that, that it is, in fact, possible. Like we saw in the video, joy, true Christian joy, is not reserved for simply some future event or even determined by our current circumstances. It is a joy that we find only within an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. As we know, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And if we follow Christ, that Spirit abides in each and every one of us. We know that joy is more than a passing emotion. Joy is ultimately a decision of faith, not because of what is happening around us, but because of what is happening within us. That's where joy is found. Our joy 
is in Jesus. Plain and simple. Our joy is in Jesus. And we know that his love knows no end. And so that tells us that we have an everlasting joy because we serve a faithful God. And that's where we find our hope and joy. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we know that uh, there have been a lot of things that have preceded us walking into the room this morning. There have been some things that have been hard, some realities that we just have to live with that are struggles. There, there have been things that, that want to rob us of our joy. And we know that that's the goal of the enemy, to steal, kill, and destroy things like our joy. And so, Lord, we would ask that you would renew our hearts this morning, that you would speak truth and life, and through that, that we would be refreshed in the joy of the Lord. So, Lord, would you just use your word to speak your truth, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. And if you would uh, begin reading with me in verse 1, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So as we look at this passage all throughout uh, verse 12, the place of Bethlehem is recognized as the birthplace of Jesus four different times. And so when we see something repeated like that in a passage, we know it's in there for emphasis. And what it's trying to emphasize for us is that Bethlehem, as the birth of Jesus, is a prophecy that has been fulfilled. And we know that because of what Matthew does in verse 6 when he quotes the prophet Micah, who looked forward to the day when the Messiah would come from the city of Bethlehem. So our passage is clearly pointing to Bethlehem, but that's not the only place we see that. We actually see it in John chapter 7, verse 4. Listen to what it says in those verses, beginning in verse 40. It says, Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, talking about the, the teaching of Jesus, they were trying to identify who he was. So they were saying, certainly, is this the prophet? Now, this is likely looking back to an Old Testament passage that said that there would be one, a prophet like Moses that would come. And he would be the one who would deliver them ultimately as the Messiah. It goes on and says, others were saying this is the Christ or the Messiah. Others were saying, surely the Messiah is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from a descendant of David and from Bethlehem, the the village where David was? 
And so a division occurred in the crowd that day because of him. So there's a division in the crowd, but I want you to see where they drew the line. They drew the line because they were arguing about where the Messiah would come from. And they say, doesn't the Scripture say that the Messiah is the descendant of David? And doesn't the Scripture also say that a descendant of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David? So as we think about our passage this morning, the Magi and our story are important. They're interesting. But only because they go to Bethlehem to find Jesus. The star is certainly a miraculous sign, but once again, only because it points to Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus. This is where the scripture says that the Messiah would be born. And according to Micah, we see in that passage that he says he will be both a ruler and a shepherd. Now, Isaiah says essentially the same thing in chapter 40, verse 9. He says, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up and do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here's your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him like a Shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. He will be both a king and a shepherd. And I believe that's what Herod learned when he asked the the scribes and, and the teachers to tell him what the scripture had to say about the promised Messiah. He learned about the coming king, and and all of this was very troubling to him because rumors of a new ruler were a threat to his throne, especially when that title, King of the Jews, that was declared in the Scripture was actually one that was given to him, Herod, by the Romans. And so apparently he's not the only one who was given that designation. And yet, as troubling as all that is, it's probably not the only reason that Herod was unsettled. We know that he learned about the coming king, the promise of the Messiah. But in verse 1, it tells us that, that the Magi came from the east and entered into Jerusalem. Well, it makes sense that they did that because Jerusalem is the city of kings. And if they're looking for a newborn king, that would be a logical place to start. So when they arrive into Jerusalem, they have no idea where to go, and they assume that people knew about this. So they're asking everyone, do you know where the child can be found, the one that the Scripture promises? And everybody looked at him like, what are you talking about? And so before he ever entered the palace, the Magi were creating quite a a stir within the city. And I think although the traditional manger scene that we see often has three wise men, it's likely not true that there were only three. We just assume that because there were three gifts presented that day. In all likelihood, it was a whole entourage along with the wise men, including soldiers who were there to protect them. And so now you can kind of understand why things were so troubling, not only to Herod, but to all of Jerusalem. 
They were creating quite a scene. Now, there's plenty of debate about the identity of these magi, but I think there might be a connection to what we have looked at recently in the book of Daniel. Because you remember, Daniel was trained among the wise men of Babylon. These were well-educated men. We know that they were trained in all the arts and the sciences and and, in spirituality. They were often asked by the king to come and give him advice and direction. And at one point we know that David was promoted, or excuse me, Daniel was promoted to be in charge of these men. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, it says, The king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men in Babylon. So, with that being said, you would expect Daniel to have had a significant influence over the lives of these men, especially when they had to have questioned him on how he could do things that no one else could possibly do. And you know that he pointed them to what he knew Scripture said. And that influence not only started with Babylon, but it carried over into the Medo-Persian Empire. And we remember that, hopefully, from our study. Well, what I believe is that these wise men in Daniel's day were ancestors of the Magi, the wise men that we see in our passage this morning. And it's likely... I believe very likely that their knowledge of the Messiah came from what was taught by Daniel many years ago. How else would these men from the East have known so much about Judaism that really didn't exist there at that time? The Magi knew more about the Messiah than most of the people in Israel, including King Herod. So look at verse 7 as we continue. Verse 7 says, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So after creating a disturbance in the city, Herod invited the Magi into the palace. And he questioned them to get more information about this rival king. As we know, he's already inquired about this with the the scribes and and the religious leaders, and and they had told him what Scripture had to say. And so I think Herod had a pretty good idea of the identity of this person. (laughs) He knew that it was the promised Messiah. But what he didn't know is exactly where to find him. And so he asked the Magi about the exact time when the star appeared, the star that they had seen when they were back home in the east. And notice he didn't inquire about the meaning or the the significance of that star because clearly that had already been determined. What he knew was that the Magi first saw this star when they were hundreds, hundreds of miles away. 
And he knew the amount of time during that day it would have taken them to travel from the far east into the city of Jerusalem. So he knew that there had been a significant amount of time since Jesus had actually been born. So when Herod was asking about the timing of the star, when did that star first appear, what he was really trying to learn was the age of the child. Which is very likely why, as we see in a few verses later, he calls for the execution of all newborn males under the age of two. Herod was willing to sacrifice innocent life in order to protect his throne. Now I want to pause there and think about this for a minute because I think it stands in such stark contrast to what we see in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he didn't protect his throne. In fact, he left his throne in order to sacrifice his innocent life so that we could be saved. He who knew no sin became sin so that we who are guilty can become innocent and blameless before God. Why? Because we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. See, Herod was ruled by selfish pride. The only thing he was thinking about was himself. Jesus was led by self-sacrificing love. The only thing he was thinking about was you. So Herod instructed the Magi to go and find this newborn king in the city of Bethlehem. And then he told them, once they had kind of determined the exact location, to come back and tell him so that he could worship him too. And we all know that was not his intent. His intent was to destroy this rival king. So the Magi left the palace, and by faith, they went to Bethlehem. And I say by faith because at this time, they still had no idea exactly where this newborn king would be found. They were just traveling from one city to the next. All they knew is that they had received a sign when they were back east. And that sign wasn't guiding them in this moment until... It says the sign that they saw from the east suddenly appeared. And it now directed them to where they would find Jesus. And what's interesting here is that this is not a normal star because stars move in the sky from east to west, right? Well, to get from Jerusalem to to Bethlehem, you go north to south, (laughs) So so there's more going on here than just a a simple star in the heavens. In fact, sometimes I wonder if it was a star at all. Maybe it was the glory of God that was directing them. Or maybe, like we see with the Israelites, all we do know is it led them straight to where they found the baby Jesus. And that's why, when the Magi saw it, it says that they rejoiced exceedingly With great joy. When the scripture says things like that, it's just trying to stack superlatives on superlatives. It's just, it it can't hardly tell you how excited they were, right? They were exceedingly excited with great joy. They knew God was leading them to see the one they longed for. 
See, their eager, eager and hopeful anticipation has now been fulfilled. In fact, they were longing for this day, I believe, long before a star ever appeared. In other words, I, I think they were looking for a Messiah before they ever saw a sign. And this is interesting because it's usually not what we typically see. Instead, more often, people want to see a sign in order to believe. But the Magi believed, and then they were given a sign. As God promises us, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And that's exactly what the Magi are doing in our passage this morning. The great joy of the Magi was a result of their hope-filled expectations. And the greater the anticipation, <laughs> the greater the joy when that is finally fulfilled. They rejoiced exceedingly because they have seen with their own eyes what their heart longs for most. Let's look at how it continues in verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. I think what we see in these two verses is very similar to what we saw last week with Simeon. As soon as the Magi saw Jesus, they knew this was a divine encounter. So they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And I want you to notice that they didn't give him gifts and then worship him. They worshipped him. And then they presented gifts as an expression of their love and adoration. And that's because righteous deeds always flow out of a worshipful heart. And that's what we see with the Magi. Their hearts were filled with worship, and their gifts were just an evidence of their joy and their delight in what they had seen. They presented the treasures of gold and, and frankincense and myrrh. And these are familiar to us. We, we know that, that gold is considered one of the most precious metals to be found. It was true for us today. It's, it was true for them in that day as well. We know that gold was a symbol of royalty. It was often a, a prized possession of kings. Frankincense was also prized, but in this case, because of its smell. It was an incense that was burned off the in the practice of worship. And it often symbolized the presence of divinity, which is why you see incense being, frankincense being used in the temple worship in the Bible. The last thing was myrrh, which is a, a prized perfume. And it was often used in preparing a body for burial. You may remember when they took Jesus down from the cross, it tells us that Nicodemus brought myrrh into the tomb as they prepared Jesus' body for burial. So the gold, honoring Jesus as the one true king. The frankincense, recognizing his 
divinity, the, the myrrh, a picture of his humanity, and in, in many ways a foreshadowing of the death that was yet to come on the cross. And then, after presenting his, their gifts, later as they called it in for the night, the, the Lord spoke to them in a dream. And he redirected them and told them not to return to Herod. And fearing God more than they feared man, they did not report back as they said they would. Instead, they chose a different path that would escape his notice. And I can only imagine what that conversation must have been on their way home. You thought about that? But even in this brief encounter, I think there's a lot that we can learn from the Magi in our story. Wise men who found their greatest joy through an encounter with Jesus Christ. And I think it begs the question for you and I, is that true for us? Do we find our greatest joy in Jesus? Let's look at a passage together. If you would turn to John chapter 15, verse 4. It's a familiar passage. You're going to recognize it as something that you've read many times. But I want us to look at it together again with maybe some fresh eyes. John chapter 15, verse 4. Jesus speaking says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in, in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here we learn, as we've known in this very familiar verse, that, that we must abide in Christ and experience the, the fruit. And part of that fruit is joy. If you, if you remember, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. Self-control, all of those fruits flourish through an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. We see that explicitly pointing to joy in verse 11. So look at that with me. Where he continues in verse 11 and says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy, think about that. Jesus is saying, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So think about that. Our joy is full only when His joy is in us. Our joy is full only when His joy is in us. Our, our goal is not to discover joy in the things that we have or things that are happening around us in our, in our circumstances. Instead, our joy is found in Jesus. So I want us to think about what it means for the, for the joy of Jesus to dwell in us. Because we know, as we look at the life of Jesus, it wasn't an easy life, was it? He experienced lots of suffering and difficulty. In fact, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 3 says, speaking of Jesus, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and, a, and acquainted with, with grief. So where? Where did Jesus find joy in the midst of all that pain? Well, I want us to look at three specific examples where we see Jesus finding joy. And I want us to consider how they might apply to our lives as well. The first one is this. 
Jesus found joy in the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 10, verse 21 says, At that very time, speaking of Jesus, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. And here's what I want you to understand about that. That joy that Jesus found in the Spirit, that very same Spirit that gave Him joy is also present in you. If you have trusted in Christ, you are indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit. His Spirit gives us comfort in our struggle. His Spirit gives us strength in our weakness. His Spirit gives us understanding and leads us into to all the truth of God's Word. The Spirit is our helper. It's a reminder that we are never alone. Like Jesus, we find joy in the Holy Spirit. As we rely on His presence, as we trust in His power, again, recognizing that we don't have joy because of what is happening around us. We have joy because of what is happening within us, where the Spirit resides, and that fruit of joy flourishes through an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. We find joy, ultimately and completely, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. But there's a second thing. We find joy, as Jesus did, in a heart of repentance. Now, we see this in several ways, but in particular in the parables that Jesus told. One in particular that I want to point us to is the parable of the woman who lost one of her ten silver coins. At the end of that parable, in Luke chapter 15, verse 9, it says, When she had found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way I tell you, there is joy, joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, Jesus doesn't want us to be burdened with regret. He wants us to find joy in the gift of his forgiveness, which is exactly what happens when we repent. We find joy in our repentance. Repentance is a cause for celebration. It's the, it's the beginning of something new. And that's why we rejoice. We should find joy when the Spirit convicts us of sin and praise the Lord for that because left to ourselves, we're a mess. Right? At least I know I am. But as the Spirit convicts us of sin, He then leads us into the everlasting way into something new, something better. So rejoice in the gift of repentance. Sometimes we suffer not because of our sin, though. Sometimes we suffer because of our obedience. In that case, Jesus tells us to find joy, but this time looking forward to an eternal reward. We see that in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, when he says, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man, Jesus. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. 
See, Jesus wants us to find joy looking beyond our current circumstances. Like Jesus, he wants us to endure for the joy set before him, where he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. He wants us to know that our suffering is ultimately exchanged for an eternal weight of glory. And the greater our suffering, the greater that reward of his glory. Which is why it's important not to compromise in order to avoid suffering, which is a tendency for all of us, right? But when we compromise in order to avoid suffering, we are only robbing ourselves of eternal joy. When we compromise in order to avoid suffering, we are robbing ourselves of eternal joy. When we find pleasure in worldly, worldly gain, we, we forfeit the blessing of joyful contentment. Because how many of you have searched after things that you just knew were going to make you happier, but when you finally got them, it didn't work? And so he wants us to understand that there's greater joy in contentment in Christ than there is in the pursuit of any of the things that this world might have to offer. Jesus says, when you suffer through the temptation of sin, then find joy in faithful obedience. When you're rejected because of your faith, find joy in God's promised approval. You see, our losses for the sake of Christ lead us into the joy of a heavenly gain. So as the passage told us, leap for joy in that day. Just think about that. Leap for joy in that day, for your reward is great in heaven. And I think the only way that you can leap for joy in the presence of difficulty is if you're looking past the difficulty to see what is coming somewhere down the road. Joy is more than a passing motion. Joy is a decision of faith. And ultimately, our joy is found in Jesus and the experience of his love for us. We rejoice in the Holy Spirit. Our, our repentance leads to our rejoicing. Our suffering reminds us of our hope. And ultimately, here's the deal. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen? That's where it's found. Nowhere else. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that reminder and for that promise. And I'm, I'm encouraged personally <laughs> That joy is not something that I have to discover on my own. It's not because of what I do or what I have or even the circumstances that I'm in. But joy is an experience of an abiding relationship with you, our Savior Jesus Christ. Your Spirit that dwells within us. That's where the fruit of joy flourishes as we look to you and trust in you. We have joy in worship. We find joy in repentance. We find joy in your promise of an eternal reward as we expectantly wait for you. Lord, I, I do pray that we would have the heart of the Magi who longed to see you face to face because they knew that's where their joy would be fulfilled. Lord, may we have the same longing as well. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. I don't know about you, but I find it interesting that the week 
that I was preparing a sermon on joy was the week that I struggled to find it most. But I think in God's sovereignty, he was leading me to a place where he was reminding me, your joy is in Jesus. No other place. And so I just hope and pray that if you happen to need a reminder this morning, that that was helpful to you as well. That your joy is found in Jesus. And when you greatly anticipate that joy, you are greatly fulfilled when you find it in him. Amen.